Hi, it's Lou Rosenfeld, and you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, sponsored by Rosenfeld Media, where we're just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out that elephant. And uh, a blind person with me today is Amy Tibdow. Hi, Amy. How are you? Hey, Lou. Good to hear your voice. I know you're fighting a, a bad cough. Uh, uh, so thanks for joining us today. Despite that, we, we'll try not to tax your voice too much, but we do have some interesting things to talk about. Uh, Amy, uh, if you don't know already, is the director of user experience, uh, at, is a director of user experience at Shopify, where she is responsible for UX operations. And uh, I think it's a really interesting story about how you got there. Uh, Interesting enough that we are having you as our opening keynoter at the Design Ops Summit in New York City on October 23rd this year. Uh, your background coming uh, from content strategy to stopping along the way at Facebook and at Shopify, things have really changed for you. You've been there, what, four years now? No, it'll be Three years in January. Okay. So pretty quickly, you came in with a, one a job, and that job has changed pretty dramatically. What What's happening there? Yeah, I initially joined Shopify to lead the content strategy practice. At the time, I think the content strategy team was about 10 people, and I had um, worked in a similar capacity at Facebook years before and have always based my career around words first. So I've always um, worked in user experience fields, but I've always really done it through the lens of language. Um, and so I joined to do that, and I was actually working remotely from New York City. And then I very quickly started working on their design system, Polaris, um, which you can see at polaris.shopify.com, and helped to launch that, and then moved to Toronto, and moved into a new role leading their UX team for their platform team at Shopify. And then went from that to operations. And I'm currently doing both of those roles today. And I think it, it has been a lot of change for a short period of time. But what I really attribute it to is uh, a quality about myself that I like to call productive discontent, <laughs> which is basically somebody who sees challenges and problems as opportunities. And so I'm always looking for things that I think aren't quite right or could be fixed or could be a little bit different, but I don't just point them out. I look for ways to actually fix them and, and do things differently. And I've been really lucky that at Shopify, it's a place where we're not too concerned about swim lanes. So if somebody sees a problem or sees an opportunity or something that could be better, they're encouraged to sort of jump into it and, and do the thing and make it better. And it doesn't matter who owns it or which swim, swim lane it's a part of. Um, and so I've really just benefited from from that tendency and from people who've let me swim towards the things that I where I see an opportunity. I love that idea of productive discontent, uh, partly because uh, it seems like there's so much discontent on the part of people in our industry. We're never quite happy with anything. Uh, and also because it reminds me of um, uh, a, a kind of productive uh, activity that I like to uh, I don't really like it, but I do it all the time. I call it productive procrastination. We'll save that for another discussion. But, um, you know, it's just, I, I just find it very interesting. I don't know why. I mean, like, it's not really surprising that someone from content strategy, someone whose words first, as you put it, 
has expanded into this broader design purview. Um, I'm not sure I've seen that much, and I'm not sure why, and I'm wondering if we're going to see a lot more of that in coming years. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. I really do. I think that content strategists who are working particularly on product experiences, so on software, I think that they really realize the role that content plays in communicating the mental model of the thing, of the, the software, um, and also the way to navigate through it and the way that it works, the system of it, really. And I think when you decouple design from, uh, from the content, you're really creating a half-baked experience. And so I think that having really integrated content strategists within UX teams is becoming a trend in, in big companies and tech companies. Uh, Facebook was one of the first ones, and, and I was there. I know that all the other big ones, Pinterest, Google, certainly Shopify, um, has robust content strategy practice embedded in its UX team. And I actually think that's something that's kind of interesting about our approach is that we don't call our team a design team. We call them a UX team. And the reason that we do that is because we think to make a good experience, you really have to have four different components being considered along the way and contributing in a meaningful way. So that is content strategy, it's design, it's what we call UX development. Sometimes in the industry, it's called front-end development and it's user research. And we think that those four components are really what needs to work together to make a user experience. And, and it's really, for me as a content person, a bit of an IA problem. I think it's a little bit problematic to call something design um, when there are four children and only one of them has that name. So we use the word UX to encompass those four practices so that we can be really inclusive. Um, and as part of that inclusivity, it does mean that all four of those practices are absolutely eligible to move into UX leadership because we really value those practices. And I think the key thing is that when you move into UX leadership across those practices, you have to be somebody who cares about all four of those practices and really believes in finding ways for them to work together in a really meaningful way. Um, I've certainly had experiences, and I'm sure a lot of content strategists who might be listening to this have, where you're a content strategist, you're working on a product, but really you're just brought in at the last minute to kind of sprinkle words on top of an experience. And anybody who's been in that situation knows that when words are not considered from the very beginning, there's no way to really make the experience work as well as it could if you integrated content throughout the process. Well, I want to I want to jump on that point and and put a plea out to our listeners, many of whom are uh, are UX people or, or or designers of one stripe or another, and are not content strategists or writers necessarily. I want you all to remember what it was like when you were the only designer or the only UX person in a sea of uh, developers or engineers or marketing people and how lonely you felt and how you were frustrated by trying to convince people that you had value and uh, and then think about the lonely UX writer or content strategist that just showed up on your doorstep last month and are probably going through a very similar struggle trying to get designers to understand what the words are there for and why they're important so come on mm -hmm. folks cut them some slack Give him a break. You know what it's like. Anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, so, you know, four of the content strategists that do happen to be listening, um, what 
what is the the sort of superpower that uh, folks like you are bringing to design operations or UX operations, if you want to call it that? Yeah. So I think that my particular superpower is really that productive discontent. But it is also, from a content strategy lens, I think the ability to break down really complicated problems into smaller pieces and to um, really understand that the way that we talk about things, the way that we communicate things is, is just critical no matter what you're doing. So, so for example, um, even when you're working on an operational project, like a, a big change to say the tooling that uh, a team might be using, it's really easy to roll out a tooling change and think that the things that you need to worry about are kind of the things, the checkboxes on your list, you know? How many people are using the current tool? You know, how are we gonna get them all migrated into the new tool? How's invoicing gonna work? How are we gonna keep track of seats? That kind of stuff. And that's important. That's important operational work. But I think as a content strategist and somebody who comes from a UX background, what I really bring is thinking about sort of the feelings of the end user of this experience. So changing tools is incredibly stressful for people. It's scary. People are worried that it's going to disrupt their job. They worry that they're not going to be able to master the tool the way they've been able to master their current tool. There is a lot of sort of fear and, and worry that can be wrapped up in something that can feel like a very straightforward operational process. And so as somebody from user experience background, I'm really attuned to that. And I'm really attuned to thinking not just about how are we going to get to point from point A to point B, but how are we going to bring people along? How are we going to talk to them? What's the experience that we want to create for people as we're moving them through this process? Um, and I and I do really layer that on into my entire approach, whether it's in my role on platform or my role leading UX operations for Shopify. In this case, my end user is the 300 plus people across our UX team, but they need to be considered just as deeply as we would consider a user on a software project that we're, we're planning to build and ship. So interesting. I actually was having a conversation for... Uh one of our other podcast uh, recordings with Nathan Curtis who's teaching a workshop at Design Ops Summit as well about certainly in, in this particular case with Nathan design systems, which is his specialization. He's going to, he's talking about design systems as a, a very unique type of product, but a product nonetheless in much the same way you are here. So that's really exciting. Um, your keynote in particular for the summit titled process and ambiguity Let's let's kind of tease those apart. You you've just used both of those words in the last moment or two. Um, how do they go together? So I think the tendency is sometimes to see process and ambiguity as um, oppositional. You know, process versus ambiguity. But I think we've called this talk, or I've called this talk, process and ambiguity, because I think the two are actually quite complementary. I think they have to operate in a complementary way. And I think too often as people who want to get stuff done, uh, who want to operationalize things, as in the tooling example that I gave you, I think the tendency is to focus on the process, sometimes at the expense of the pieces that are ambiguous and messy and hard. Um, I have a friend, a good friend named Jonathan Coleman, who leads content strategy at Intercom. And he talks about some of these things as wicked ambiguity. Um, he talks about the fact that there are some problems that are so hard to solve that it can feel easier 
to ignore them and to not deal with them. And, and so I think as operational people, we, we, we feel a bit of comfort, or certainly I do, in leaning into the process side because it's something that is very controllable. You can predict what you need to do and you can check things off of a list. But the problem comes when all of the feelings and the messy human emotions kind of leap up and get in your way. So an example that I'll mention um, that a lot of people have written and thought about, this is not unique to me, are desk reshuffles or desk moves in offices. So the natural inclination is to think that this is a very tactical operational task, right? We need to move people from sitting in one place to another place, usually based around some principles or, or some ways that we want them to work together. And we make a big spreadsheet and a map of where people sit today and where we want them to sit. And then we send out an email saying, we're doing a desk reshuffle. And by the way, you're going to be sitting in this new spot. And that's the natural process-driven way of approaching it. But the problem with that is moving desks is incredibly stressful for people. They care about who they sit with. They feel a lack of control when their desk is suddenly moved. They feel possibly not listened to. They feel worried that they're going to be left out or they're not going to be with people who are friendly to them in their new in their new desk. There are so many messy and ambiguous human problems that are wrapped up in something as simple as a desk move. And so we need to consider the ambiguous, messy parts of these operational problems in order to actually tackle them effectively. Well, I but, saw the movie <laughs> Office Hours. I, I saw what happens if you just move someone around. Uh, 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 well... If you didn't see the movie, it leads to a, 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 a spoiler alert here. The, 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 the guy whose desk got moved too often sets the whole building on fire. Yes, uh, that's a great movie with the red stapler. The I red remember this line. red stapler. Yep. Yeah, St Stephen Root is a god. Um, but, okay, you know, so you're saying they're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're not, it's not an or situation. They're complementary. Do you mean that in the sense that process is 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 there to kind of stabilize things or in, in the sense of serving as sort of guardrails for that human messiness and ambiguity so that it, it can exist without just getting too crazy? I think process is actually really important. And I, I actually, I like process a lot. And in fact, what's I think maybe interesting about me is my tendency is to swing too far to, to process on the scale and to think that in order to be really efficient to operationalize things, I just need to kind of ignore the messy human stuff and, and get the process done. Because I think the other thing that is important to understand is that sometimes a lot of the fear that's wrapped up in ambiguity is served by process. Um, what we found recently, and I'm going to go back to the tools example, is we have a lot of people across the team who are using a lot of random tools to do their job. And Initially, when we started applying a bit of process against it, I was really worried that people would be upset with it, you know, that nobody would want to have somebody tell them what tools they were meant to be using. But what I actually found when I spoke to people was that they were craving a little bit of process. They really wanted us to tell them what we wanted them to use and how they could find out if a tool was approved because there was no process. And so there was only ambiguity and people were having to guess and they weren't sure if they were going to be in trouble or if they were using the wrong tool or if the tool was secure, so many things. Um, and so in that case, 
it, it was interesting because my expectation, which was that people would hate process around which tools they could use, turned out to be wrong. And people were actually craving it because they had too much ambiguity. And that ambiguity was bad and it was distracting and it was keeping them from, you know, focusing their energy on the things that, that they are actually wanting to do in their jobs, the things that they do here to make an impact. I'm going to take a moment to let you know about what's keeping me busy at the moment. Rosenfeld Media is putting on a third edition of the Design Ops Summit in New York City this October 23rd to 25th. You, like many of our listeners, are probably dealing with the challenge of moving your organization from design thinking to design doing. And for that reason, you're probably already excited by the emergence of design and research operations and their potential. Here in 2019, we're seeing design ops and research ops maturing, moving from definition and scoping to more formal, rigorous practices. And that's the story of this year's conference. The program focuses on tools, techniques, and takeaways that you can bring back to the office. So I think you'll want to join us in New York this October. Please check out our program, and if you like what you see, buy your ticket at designopssummit.com. Well, you know, you're giving me, I think, a clue as to how you you deal with this challenge of, of as a design ops person uh, or UX ops, however we want to call it, you have to make some interesting calls about when to kind of steer toward process versus when to steer away. It's, it's almost like you're a, a god who's got a, a whole bunch of levers to play with sitting in your panopticon looking out across the design organization what how do you how do you make that call how do you push it in one direction or steer it in another uh, is it simply by talking with people or are you using any kind of dare i say metrics to to evaluate how things are going what what what's important to you to look for that suggests that you may need to change something steer so- it in one direction or another UX operations is pretty new at Shopify. You know, it's been happening in pockets off and on, but we've really only built a team around it starting at the beginning of this year. And so I have always seen this year as a little bit of a pilot year, a year where we can try a lot of things. We have a lot of room to fail um, and where we're doing, quite frankly, a lot of listening to people. I think there is a benefit to the fact that I have been working at Shopify in a UX capacity for a couple of years that I worked on our design system, which put me in a position to really understand some of the the challenges that people were having when they were working together and building experiences. Um, And so I think I was starting with a bit of a leg up. I think it would have been really hard for somebody to come in with no Shopify context and, and figured out how to do this. I went into the year with a lot of productive discontent with a lot of ideas about what I thought would would improve the way that we were working together. Um, and so we don't have a lot of hard metrics this year, but we do have a lot of transparency. And that has been a really foundational way that we've approached our work. So I put together what, what I call an investment plan, which is a fancy way of saying the things that we were going to focus on this year, the things that I thought were the biggest, most pressing opportunities for us to, to work on and work towards solving. And I put that together 
with a lot of input from UX directors across the company. And I've put that in a central place in our internal vault, which is kind of like our internal internet, so that anybody across the UX team, no matter what their level, no matter what team they're on, no matter where they're located, they can see that information, they can comment on it, they can give feedback. We've also got public channels where we invite people, where we're regularly talking about what we're doing. Um, we use an internal tool that we have to actually put all of our projects on a project board where anybody in the company can go and see what we're working on and see our progress, see our updates. We've published a very simple roadmap that is our sort of H2 roadmap. It's a spreadsheet. Anybody can access it. And we've spoken at a lot of UX team all hands this year about what we're doing and why. And we've just really approached it from the perspective of this is new to Shopify. We're trying some things. We want this to work for you. We're sharing everything we're doing with you and we want you to contribute to it. Um, I, I think of this being informed a little bit by my experience working on platform, which is effectively a platform is a fancy way of saying that you build a set of, of building blocks or you build a foundation that other people can repurpose and build on top of. It's flexible. Um, and that's how we've really approached our works. So we've thought about what are the key building blocks that we want to build and the way that other people are able to use those building blocks, repurpose them, mix and match them, and even develop their own building blocks has been really great to see because we're a super small team and we're really new. We can't do everything. So we really need to operate under a federated type of a model that allows other people to feel some ownership and connection so that they can evolve what we're doing and contribute to it. So I think you've given us a, a, certainly a taste of some of what you'll be covering in your keynote at the Design Ops Summit. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about what you'll be talking about? Do you know what you'll be talking about? That's not fair, but I know that, that, you know, we have six weeks to go and I know you're not one of those last minute people, but, uh, I have well, to needle you know, I did, I do really relate to, what did you call it? Your productive procrastination mm -hmm. comment. I am a bit of a, of a procrastinator. Um, but yeah, I think the, th the thing that I really want to lean into is this relationship between process and ambiguity and how those two things can work together and how I think we can continue to feel like those empowered, efficient operational machines that we want to be, that we're all driven by, because we are all, I think, in operations, driven to make life better for the people on our teams. And I think that's an incredibly good instinct. But what I want to talk about is the ways that we can have an interplay between process and ambiguity that will help us do that in a way that feels balanced, in a way that allows us to be productive, but also not to ignore those messy human, even wicked problems that sometimes either get in our way or cause people to not actually want to leverage and use the great sort of systems and processes that we're building for them. Fantastic. Uh, I'm going to ask you for a shout out in a moment, which is how I like to wrap up our podcast. But uh, before I do that, I just want to let people know we've been talking with Amy Thibodeau, who uh, directs UX operations at Shopify in Ottawa, correct? I'm actually in Toronto, but we have our headquarters in Ottawa. Ah, We're a distributed we team. 
both lovely places. And um, Amy will be the opening keynote at uh, this year's Design Operations Summit in uh, Brooklyn, New York, October 23rd through 25th. Uh, And if you want to know more about Amy, she tells me that the best way to keep up with her is through her Twitter uh, account, which is uh, Amy Tibdo, which is a hard one to spell because there's like 17 variations. So it's A-M-Y-T-H-I-B-O-D-E-A-U. That's her Twitter handle. If you want to know more about Amy, check that out. Who are you going to shout out? I think or I'm going to shout out. Huh, I think I'm going to shout out Laura Hogan. And Laura Hogan has fairly recently released a book called Resilient Management. And she's really interesting. She comes from a technical front-end development background. Um, but what she talks about so well is that messy human side of being a manager. And I recommend her book. And I also recommend her website, which I think is laurahogan.com. But you might want to check that. Is that Laura with, uh, a, with uh, a U? It's L-A-R-A. Okay. Hogan, like the wrestler. Fantastic. Amy, yeah. great to talk with you today. Thanks for joining us. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in, in Brooklyn next month. Thanks so much, Lou. I'm so glad to be here and really looking forward to Design Ops Summit and to meeting all the, the smart people that will be there. Fantastic. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.